to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. All right, so Lauren, I'm pretty sure that I passed you on the highway on Saturday. You were driving north on 95. I was driving south. There were kittens everywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere. (laughs) All right, okay, so maybe that didn't quite happen. Sadly, I did not see you. Uh, But you were driving north on Saturday, and I was driving south to Georgia, and there were kittens involved. Yeah, so I drove back up to D.C. on Saturday with a a colleague of ours after being in Florida for two months. Uh, I was really sad to leave my family, but it was just time to to come back up to my own apartment. And we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, months ago now, I had a a cat that passed and I was was really sad. And, you know, I saw a Craigslist ad before I left uh, in Florida for these two little bitty kittens. And we showed up and literally the woman came out. And she said, uh, I was with my sister. She said, y- y- y'all look like nice girls. And she handed me the oh. cat. She went back in her, uh, her house. Oh, so, so um, yeah, but they're, they're very little. They're, I think they're about six weeks right now. It's a boy and a girl. Uh, the girl has a, a tortoiseshell pattern on her. And her name is Dolly after Dolly Parton. So cute. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah, of course. And then uh, the other one, his name is Jones after George Jones. Uh, and he's gray with uh, a little bit of white on his neck and uh, white toes. So he's 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 cute. And it's cute to see their little personalities. And uh, I chose those names because my family, for some reason, decides to name all of their cats after country music singers so <laughs> my cat that passed was reba and um, my parents have hank uh and hank had a brother um who was toby keith so yeah i don't know it's just like a fun thing that we do with our animals yeah keeping the tradition going i love it that's very clever <laughs> <laughs> so virginia have you uh gotten some uh you know are you a little jealous or have you been thinking about I, getting some pets? I'm very jealous, Lauren. <laughs> and if your cats disappear, you'll know where they went. Oh. Uh, but no, yeah, I have had those like thoughts, like those flashes of like, oh man, I could get a dog right now. But then it's like, no, Virginia, no, because whenever we go back to work, whether that's, you know, in two weeks or two months, I, you know, I am gone for most of the day. So that animal would not be happy with me. And uh, frankly, like I love like... Little kittens are adorable. I'm not a huge cat person, though. I'm really a cat person. It's it's okay. You have the right to be wrong. Oh, well, thanks, Lauren, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But I am am kind of getting my my dog fix in right now. I'm, uh, like I said, I drove down on Saturday to Georgia. So I'm down here with my sister and my brother-in-law. And they have a great Dane named Spartan. Uh, he is 150 pounds and just a total lap dog. He has no idea how big he is. Oh. Like you'll be sitting on the couch and he literally comes and sits on your lap. Uh, so he's fun. He's adorable. I was super excited to see my sister and my brother-in-law. I may have been equally as excited to see Spartan. Oh, 150 pounds. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, he's a big dog. As my mom always said when I was down in Florida, she said, you know what, Lauren? Everybody should have a baby in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> she was of course referencing my my niece that was there yeah who, uh is a three and a half months so yeah, yeah pets and know. babies are getting us through this season exactly yeah. <laughs> all right well lauren what do we have up for today up on today's problematic women we talk with jessica anderson the executive director of heritage action for america about state bailouts and grassroots activism as some states begin to reopen their economies while others remain on a tight lockdown. 
Heritage Foundation Research Associate Melanie Israel gives us some updates on just how essential abortions are during COVID-19. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. I am joined by Jessica Anderson, the Executive Director of Heritage Action for America, the lobbying arm of the Heritage Foundation, and the former Associate Director of Intergovernment Affairs and Strategic Initiatives for the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump Administration. Jess, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Great to be with y'all. Before we start, I just want to say, like, you are such a lady boss, and I'm so excited that you're (laughs) on the show. Well, it's awesome to to be with you guys. I love Problematic Women. I listen to it all the time, and it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, It's so good to have you. And I'm really excited to talk with you today about just some of the practical things that are happening in our world, such as states trying to reopen their economies and, gosh, bailouts and just all of this information that we're hearing out about in the news. So let's begin by talking about states reopening. Heritage Action is very involved with grassroots activism across the country. And I know that you're regularly in touch with people from all 50 states. So what are you hearing from people? So folks all across the country are incredibly eager to open back up. They feel like they've done their part to slow the spread. They feel like New York City is different than, you know, suburbs of Dallas, Texas, different than Orlando, Florida, different than Iowa. And every state has a different influx of cases and a different capacity for their healthcare systems. And as such, they feel like we don't need this one size fits all blanketed stay at home order from coast to coast. So the grassroots um, is really animated about this. They're eager for opening. They're eager to be allowed to travel um, and to try to return to some semblance of a, of a new normal um, once all of this is kind of behind us. But you know, we have conversations really daily from small business owners um, or college students or grandparents of high school graduating seniors. And all the stories I hear are just this anxiety to get back to normal, open back up and allow governors to make decisions for their states based on the data at the state and local level. So your organization, Heritage Action, has launched a petition to, quote, open up America that is now has 100,000 signatures. Can you explain what that is and what you are advocating for in this petition? Absolutely. So it's actually breaking news that we just uh, reached 100,000 signatures. And I'm so thrilled about that milestone because it just shows how eager people are to move forward. And so the petition is really simple. It's six principles and they're based on freedom. People should be free to travel. Governors should only implement stay-in-place orders in targeted and specific manners based on those local needs. It goes on to talk about businesses being able to open to the public and only apply restrictions where the coronavirus or COVID-19 incidences are high. And then it talks about, and this is one of my favorite parts of the petition, it talks about American responsibility. And I think that's really 
um, the, the hidden blessing that's come out of this crisis is that America as a whole, our people are great and we have incredible strengths and personal responsibilities and a civic duty to care for our neighbors, to care for the elderly, some of those vulnerable populations. And so the petition turns all of that on its head and says, do you commit to holding your end of the bargain to make informed decisions regarding social health and economic issues? And so um, as you can expect, the petition took off like a wildfire. We launched it just 15 days ago. And in the course of just grassroots momentum of sharing the petition from one activist to another, we've reached 100,000 signatures. And we're excited because this week we're going to deliver them directly to the National Governors Association as part of this larger momentum this week that's coalescing all across the country of telling governors it's time to open American society and you can do it in a smart and thoughtful way based on the data at the local level. Uh, that's really exciting, Jess. And I think it's so neat to see just people kind of engaging in this civic process. And as you're talking to people in different parts of the country, what are you hearing that are those issues that they're most concerned about? And do they differ regionally? I mean, the people in New York where, you know, they've been closed longer and under kind of a stricter shutdown because of coronavirus, are they worried about different things than, let's say, people in Florida that have had less restrictions? You know, it's really interesting because the anxieties in this crisis have taken different impact levels. And so what I mean by that is when this whole thing started, everyone was really concerned about the health impact and the fear of catching the coronavirus or that a loved one would really um drove us all into isolation. And in a lot of ways, it paralyzed us. We didn't know if we could go to the grocery store. We didn't know if we could travel. And everyone really just went inside and closed their doors. We all know this. We did the same thing. In recent weeks, though, it's become clear that in addition to the health concerns, there's a huge amount of concern about the economic impact of the virus itself. And part of that are all of these subplots. That's what we've been calling them at Heritage Action. So the big plot is health and economic impact. The subplots underneath it are things like, are we too reliant on China for American manufacturing? What does that even mean? Is there concerns about testing and whether or not that's people are able to access that by a large volume and a large population? What's the concern about when a business reopens? Will it have liability and be on the line if someone gets sick in their stores? And so all of, and there's more other subplots, but those, those three ones really um, weave the fabric of concerns that I'm hearing as I talk to people on a daily basis. And, you know, I, I think it's really interesting because it's these types of concerns really unite people all across the country. But how these concerns are applied, it truly depends on what their specific state apparatus is. And so in a state like Florida, actually where I am right now, we escaped the DC area to head down <laughs> to Florida, to Florida this weekend. And I feel like I'm living free down here. I mean, Florida is, is basically open. They're moving through a multi-phase plan. They're one of the 44 states across the country that are somewhat open, but they're definitely on the leading edge. Governor DeSantis is out front on this. We have two great senators, Senator Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, who are both leading 
leading in this effort. And, you know, it's a totally different even vibe down here than the vibe I was getting in the DC metro area where, you know, it was one in one out of the grocery store. And so those sorts of um, uniqueness at the state and level, I think really impact people's psyches and kind of mental stability and also impacts just exactly what their anxieties are with each of these subplots. I mean, you, you, you know, states are different. And I think that's really important to note because you have states like Michigan and Virginia that are just lagging behind in, in their openings. And then you compare that with a state like Florida or Georgia or North Dakota. I mean, North Dakota opened and hasn't had a single new case in three days. I mean, this is this is what when we mean there's differences in states and we can't have this one size fits all policy. It's because we need businesses and counties with the lowest incidence allowed to reopen. And that is exactly what's going to allow the economy to bounce back, not bailouts, not additional direct cash payments, um, and certainly not this reckless spending that the left is is promulgating in Washington. That's so funny you bring up the difference between Florida and D.C. I, I made the opposite trip this weekend. <laughs> and, you know, down there, they're still wearing masks and they're still social distancing. But it's, you're, the word vibe is, is the perfect way to put it. You know, in D.C., it feels like, um, you know, we're kind of like living in this like weird ultra society. And in Florida, you know, people are still being normal. Why do you think there's a, a hesitance with this more left leaning states to not open when we're seeing states like Florida and Georgia being pretty normal as they open up? Well, I think it's really unfortunate because I, I think some of these left-leaning states um, are really leading into some of this partisan warfare that we are seeing across the country. When you have a governor um, like the governor of Michigan who's refusing to work with her legislature and uh, it comes across that she is, you know, randomly banning some things versus others in her state. If you look closer, you actually see a, a pretty partisan uh, roadmap that she's trying to, to walk forward on um, because a state like Michigan is so critical electorally um, for the president and his reelection efforts. And so, you know, I think you have this dichotomy between a red state and a blue state where they know that they can weaponize this virus, not only politically, but also on a policy basis. And that's what we saw from the liberal left and their attempts to jam through legislation in the House this last week. Nancy Pelosi came out with a one trillion dollar bailout. And those funds are going to more than just coronavirus relief. They would be going to paying down pension debt at the state level, existing debt on state budgets. And in many cases, our research has found that they're actually going directly to unions who are turning around and then running ads against conservatives. And so you really see, unfortunately, I think, this element of partisan warfare going on where the left feels that they can hold Americans hostage in this health and economic crisis to extract either partisan ends for the election in November or longstanding policy goals like we saw in the House this last week. And, you know, I think the American people are, are waking up to that. I mean, they realize that they don't want to be pawns in this partisan process. They want to fight back. They're signing our petition. They're talking to their governors. They're reaching out to their members of Congress. They're writing letters to the editor in dozens across the country. And that's exactly what a group like ours, Heritage Action, likes to see because 
you know, we are the people and we are the ones that are able to hold our elected officials accountable um, and try to break through some of this partisan jamming that's going on. Yeah, Jess, let's talk a little bit more about that spending element that we are seeing so much debate around and specifically state bailouts. There's a lot of debate about whether or not states should be bailed out. And Trump even said about bailouts during a sit down with the press in the Oval Office that he said, quote, it's not fair to the Republicans because all the states that need help, they're run by Democrats in every case. Florida is doing phenomenal. Texas is doing phenomenal. The Midwest, as you know, fantastic, very little debt. So can you tell us about this issue and what you think should be done regarding bailouts or possible bailouts? Absolutely. So I I think first we need to define what is a state bailout. And so when we're talking about state bailouts, what we're talking about is should the federal government, should the American taxpayer bail out through the form of unrestricted aid send dollars back to states. So that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the millions of dollars per state that already went to each state because of coronavirus health impact through the CARES Act. That's already been done. And relief like that, that says, look, your state has been on the front lines when it comes to the health crisis. Let's get you some relief. And they did that through the CARES Act. We're not talking about opposing things like that. What we're talking about is when Governor Cuomo says, I need unrestricted aid for the state of New York because I've been underfunded by $422 billion. Or when a state like California or Illinois start talking about their pension plans that are underfunded and need additional funds and want to use this crisis to backfill those coffers. So, you know, everyone's throwing around these terms, don't bail out a state, don't bail out a state. Oh, well, you know, the states haven't done anything wrong. This this crisis has impacted them. We need to really separate the difference between the two. Relief that's based on the health impact is one thing, and Congress has addressed that, and it, they'll likely address that again. But unrestricted aid that's going specifically to items like pension bailouts or political ads or union dues or a a fiscally mismanaged state budget, those things were well in action and well in place long before the coronavirus even hit and disrupted America. And the American taxpayer, we should not be on the hook for those poor fiscal decisions before. We're already on a hook for so much uh, spending when it comes to what the CARES Act did and, and, and congressional responses the last 60 days. So We need to separate the two and and really understand what it is that they're asking for. Uh, And that's the type of thing that I'm so pleased to see so many Americans opposing. And also credit where credit is due. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell um, in the Senate has been adamant against any sort of state bailout for unrestricted aid to states that has nothing to do with the coronavirus health and economic crisis at all. So let's say these states do get a bailout. How can we make sure that we are holding them accountable and, you know, this crazy out of control spending that you were just talking about doesn't happen? Well, I think that if there is a state bailout that goes forward, it's going to go first with a lot of conservative opposition. And it's not going to be an easy bill to pass in the House or Senate. And it's certainly not going to be an easy bill for the president to sign. So let's first just call balls and strikes, which is that moving a state bailout through 
through Congress is going to be incredibly difficult and be um, faced with a significant amount of resistance from the right and from fiscally uh, sound moderates as well. So I think that's one. Second, if it were to pass, and you know, I don't, I don't love playing the game of what ifs, but if it were to pass, I think you, you are going to see an incredible amount of, of, of revolt to spending that is just completely out of control. You know, I wrote an article about this this last week. When you look specifically at how much of this debt is just being passed on to the millennial generation. And I start off my article saying the days of overpriced avocado toast and lattes may be over for millennials. And, you know, it's the only time I've written about avocado toast and vanilla lattes, but I just loved it because the reality is the youngest generation in the workforce is in for an incredibly rough 2020. They're graduating high school, graduating college, entering the workforce, and now they're going to have an insane amount of debt that's just saddled to their shoulders. Even if we caught somewhat of a break through the Trump era economic boom, all of that really is under the water. And so you know, when you when you look at what's being the debt that's being passed down to the next generation, that is a crisis. It's a crisis that doesn't really have an end date. It doesn't have a vaccine. It doesn't have data driven, you know, decision making capabilities. It's going to affect everyone. And so, you know, this model of just let's let the next generation deal with it and these decades of passing the buck from generation to generation when it comes to debt is incredibly concerning. And that's exactly what I believe Americans need to hold their members of Congress um, and the president accountable for and and talk specifically about how debt is going to strangle this next generation um, and and to get out of this uh, to dig ourselves out of this, you know, irresponsible spending, we're going to have to take even more dramatic steps to cut spending going forward. Everything's going to have to be on the table. We're going to have to look specifically about all of the expenditures of the United States government. We're going to have to work hard to bring and, and to allow businesses to flourish here. So that looks like cutting regs, cutting taxes, and finding ways that we can get back to a balanced budget and getting, getting back to sustained spending and, and in a smart way. And, you know, these are the types of things that the lasting effects of the coronavirus long after this ends, America is still going to have to be dealing with, especially the millennial generation. So in regards to that and kind of fixing this really crisis, yeah, that we find ourselves in with so much debt, how much of that has to be done at the federal level versus the state and local level? Well, both. So state and local governments, but in particular state governments, have the ability to manage and to pay down their own fiscal budget sheets. And so you look at a state of Florida, which we've been talking about, you know that Senator Scott, when he was governor, he worked to pay down the debt here to have a balanced budget in the state of Florida. DeSantis has carried that tradition in wise fiscal spending for such a large state that we have in the South. Same with Texas. Texas has a, a great state budget. Um, governor Abbott works incredibly hard and diligently to ensure that his sheets are balanced as well. Um, and also that there's a rainy day and a rainy day fund allows states to tap into that for extraordinary times, such as this uh, coronavirus crisis that we find ourselves in. And so states play a part here in balancing their own budget sheets and being making smart fiscal decisions. But the federal government 
over, over by and large. And as a, as the largest, you know, holder of debt, uh, in our country, way more than just what's at the state level. I mean, this is, this is really what we're talking about. I mean, the, when you look just at, for instance, the millennial generation, they're responsible for trillions of new debt incurred just this year on top of the $23 trillion that was already an existing federal debt. So we're not even talking about just coronavirus debt, but everything that was before has now added on. And so the federal government has a huge responsibility here to get serious about cutting spending, to take a hard look at what programs it's funding, to take a hard look at the waste, fraud, and abuse that's ripe in the agencies. Now, this Trump administration has done, I think, a really good job in taking the first two or three steps in not only identifying the waste, fraud, and abuse, but then signaling that it's going to weed it out. But that work is nowhere near being done. And, you know, the good work that President Trump has done, Congress needs to follow suit and pass budgets that are within our means as a country um, and really work on lowering the federal debt. And that's got to include cutting programs. It's got to include lowering taxes it's got to, it has to include a strong deregulatory agenda. And it also has to include some of this cap on some of this fiscal mismanagement that we're seeing. The House Democrats just passed the HEROES Act, a massive coronavirus package that isn't expected to pass in the Senate. What do you think of this bill? Well, first, I, I would just like to say it's so challenging when these bills get named really good things. I mean, can we just acknowledge that? How can anyone be against the HEROES Act? Come on. I just want to say that that's always such a challenge. But the recently passed HEROES Act, such as it's called, it's going to cost $3 trillion. And that's more than the rest of coronavirus funding put together. So that's more than what we've already spent with the CARES Act. So it's nearly as much as the United States receives in revenue annually. So when you put that $3 trillion up against what's already been happening, you see it's just through the roof. And the reality is, is that this bill has a number of policy problems in it. It includes a postal service bailout. It includes um, billions of dollars, almost nearly a trillion, of state and local bailouts. It has environmental justice grants. And it basically has a laundry list of things that the left has been promulgating and trying to push forward for years. Um, and they're using this crisis to do it. So, you know, I don't think very highly of this bill. I have serious concerns. It's not just at the policy level. Yes, we need to be concerned with um, the bailouts. We need to be concerned with the, um, there's 50 million for environmental justice grants, stimulus payments for illegal immigrants, student loan forgiveness, a federal deduction of the salt cap. It lifts it. All things that we've been fighting for or against on the conservative side for years. But the other part of this, it's not just the policy, it's the, it's the blanket partisanship of this bill. And it couldn't be more clear than when you look at how it interferes directly with states' election rights. And so that part of the bill has to be top of our concerns when you look at how it would require and provide no-excuse absentee vote-by-mail bailouts it would forego any form of identification to obtain an absentee ballot. It establishes vote-by-mail standards, something that is not in the Constitution at all. Um, this 
and if you did this, this vote by mail standard, it allows you to designate another person to return their ballot for them. So the, 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 the ability for there to be even more fraud in our voting electoral system just completely gets stripped out and is exposed in an incredibly dangerous and unconstitutional way. And so it's not just the spending. It's not just the policy which wish list. It's the larger partisan effort to break our election process and our election safeguards that really frustrate me um, and frankly, keep me up at night when we see something like this being pushed through the House. Now, thankfully, I have I have all faith that the Senate will not take up this bill. Um, but even if they don't, it still matters because it sets the marker out there for what the liberal policy wish list is. It sets the marker that this is our starting point on the left. This is exactly what the right has to fight against. And we have to work hard to loosen that policy foothold that the left has with so many voters across this country. And so while the bill may not move forward, it still matters and it's still worth vigilantly fighting against and exposing exactly what it is that they're trying to do. And one of the ways that you all do so strategically fight against things like the HEROES Act is through really grassroots engagement, and that's through your Sentinels program. Can you tell us a little bit about the role uh, that your Sentinels play? So Heritage Action Sentinels are literally the, the front line of any legislative fight. They know their member of Congress. They know the areas that the member of Congress is most likely to um, work with to make a decision. So whether that's um, working with donors around the member, working with newspapers to get letters to the editor, or directly contacting them in their office, they've got those great relationships. And so when we're in the middle of a legislative fight, we want to activate our sentinels so that they then can tap into their sphere of influence and create this echo chamber around a member saying, look, you can do the right thing here. This is what it is. It means standing up against a bill like the HEROES Act. It means standing up for small businesses and supporting things like the Paycheck Protection Program. And it, and it means saying, look, we've got to get serious about spending. We've got to be real to cut that spending and to do it in a way that is um, strategic and protects the next generation. So our Sentinels get activated really um, like you would light a match. And that sort of fire is lit across the country. They then go to work in their communities, reaching into that with their relationships um, and encouraging the member of Congress to do the right thing when it comes to their vote. And when it comes to, uh, you know, whether it's a bill moving through a committee or on the House floor, Sentinels are responsible really for, for knowing all those pieces. So, we take pride in our, our Sentinel program. We know that it's the most um, advanced and sophisticated grassroots program in the nation right now because it truly is on the front lines and it, it depends heavily on those relationships to get the, to get the job done. And for anyone listening who's thinking, wow, that sounds amazing. I wish I could be a Sentinel. How, how can they maybe go about learning more or even becoming a Sentinel themselves? Well, we'd love to have you. So the Sentinel team is constantly growing. Um, and you can learn more at heritageaction.com. And you can click the icon that just simply says, become a Sentinel. We're going to ask you a couple questions about the things that you're most interested in doing in your community. And then we're going to match you up with an influencer coach. These are regional coordinators. 
that are based in the states all across the country, and they'll help you build a plan to grow your relationship with your elected officials and to grow your influence in the community. So we'd love to have you heritageaction.com and you can sign up right there and we'll be in touch. Awesome. Well, switching gears a little bit, you know, Jess, you have had such an amazing career in Washington, D.C., including an important position in the Trump administration. And now, of course, leading Heritage Action. What advice do you have to other young women who, uh, you know, maybe are working in D.C. or want to work in D.C. one day and they're trying to figure out how do I grow in my career and do that still maybe in a way that, you know, is honoring and respectful, but that you're really kind of going after it? I have been incredibly fortunate. I've worked in this town for over a decade, and it's an interesting and cutthroat town to work in. But I think the key to success really comes down to one thing, which is you have to be faithful in the small things. So whenever you start out, there's a tendency of, oh, well, you know, I I got this big job. I didn't think I was going to be making copies or writing talking points or sending out emails. All of those things are part of the process. You know, I was fortunate enough that the first job I had out of college was in a small state think tank in this great state of North Carolina. And I was basically doing a jack of all trades outreach role. And when you're exposed to all different types of an organization and all different ways that the political process and the policy process really works, you really are able to learn as you go. But you have to be faithful in those small things, especially at the beginning as you're building your career. And then as you think about, okay, my career is 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 on one track. How do I then ensure that I can still have a family? You know, I'm I'm the mom of two incredibly adorable children. I have a six year old son and an eight month old baby girl. And you know, I have a really big gap in those years. Um, and sometimes God just has different plans for when you would have your children. But we've worked all along the way to have a partnership in our marriage where we pass off childcare duties and we make sure that we're both able to focus on our work and our family. And we never think of it as a choice. You know, you never think of it as, well, this is my family time. This is my work time. Because then I feel like you set yourself up for failure because you're always going to have to choose one over the other. I We decided early on in our marriage and early on in my career that we would just never do that. I'm always working and I'm always a mom. <laughs> There's no <laughs> lines. <laughs> and so, you know, I think now that we've settled into a groove, we just continue to to trust that there's enough hours in the day. And if your to-do list slides over to the next day, that's okay. Um, but those small things, whether they were at the beginning of my career or now, you got to do them and you got to stay faithful to them. I have to say, well, there's a lot of career moves in this town that, you know, kind of go unnoticed. But I, I do have to say the day that you were named executive director, it a lot of people just had a really a lot of nice things to say about you. So we're just so excited for you in your new role at Heritage Action. Uh, but before we let you go, you're in Florida for a very uh, kind of exciting reason. Uh, your sister is getting married and, and you don't hear of a lot of weddings right now, you know, because people aren't gathering. So what are they doing to be able to have this ceremony, but also, you know, stay smart in the pandemic? Well, it's so funny. So my 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 sister is getting married and she set the date like most brides did, you know, six months ago before any of this uh, really 
wrestled and, and wrecked our worlds. And so she's getting married on Saturday. And instead of having a, a big fancy uh, wedding reception with a hundred people, it's going to be a small backyard wedding with just her siblings and her parents and the groom's siblings and parents. And so um, it's sweet, it's intimate. Um, and it's, and it's, I think a memory that they will cherish for, for decades to come. Um, and I love that they chose to do this. I mean, every, every bride, I think that's trying to get married during this time has to make the decision for herself. But for them, they were like, there's no reason to wait. We're getting married. This is a union before God. Let's just do it. And so we're going to be gathered in the backyard of my parents' house under some twinkle lights that we bought from Home Depot uh, over the palm trees ahead. Let them say their vows. And, you know, we'll pump up the back speakers as loud as we can on our iPads and, and have a great night. So it's a really cool experience to be down here in Florida to, to be a part of. And I'm really excited for them. And I'm excited for all the brides that have had to be creative during this season to marry their marry their true loves. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, every wedding is unforgettable, but I feel like <laughs> once during coronavirus, they're, they have something special. Definitely no one will ever forget. So well, I have to, fun. I have to, I have to add one more thing. You know, it's not that they, not only are they doing the wedding, but they actually have a great sense of humor, I think, about the whole thing. And so, you know, when you go to a wedding, sometimes you get like a welcome packet that has the itinerary, you know, <laughs> rehearsal dinners here, weddings here, you know, wear this here, that sort of thing. It's a very, very organized family. So we still had our little welcome basket and in it was a six pack of Corona beers and it said, welcome to our Corona wedding. And I just thought, this is, per this is perfect. You know, they've got a great sense of humor. They realize what this is all about. Out and we just couldn't be happier. Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's so creative. All right, Jess. Well, before we let you go, we have to ask, we love to ask everyone that comes on the show this question. We get such different responses. Obviously, you're conservative, um, but want to know, do you consider yourself to be a feminist? Yes or no? Why or why not? I am a family feminist. I believe that women have the ability to uh, to make a choice, and that choice could mean staying home and growing their family. That choice could be going to work, or it could choose, or you can choose to do both. So, I'd like to take back the term and redefine it as family feminist that puts your family first, and whatever that looks like for you, that's the choice that you make. And that makes me incredibly problematic because <laughs> I don't fit into the the clear cookie cutter, one size fits all definition that liberal women have for women like me that want to have a compelling and interesting career where we're serving the American people and raising a family. So I consider myself family feminist and that makes me incredibly problematic. <laughs> It definitely does. Well, Jess, we are, we're so thankful for you coming on and just for all of your insight and all the hard work that you're doing at Heritage Action. We just really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved the conversation and I just love this podcast so much. Thank you. So if you're feeling a little bored at home and you're looking for some great ways to keep up with what's going on in the world, to stay informed, to be educated on the important issues, you should definitely check out the Heritage Foundation webinars. Heritage can't host events in person right now, but we're still having events online almost every single day, ranging from discussions about the future of our economy to America's relationship with China. You can find all the upcoming webinars by visiting the Heritage Foundation website and clicking on events. All right, let's get back to the show. 
I am joined by Melanie Israel, Research Associate in the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. Melanie, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here. So when COVID-19 hit, we heard a lot of debate about whether or not an abortion should be deemed as an essential medical procedure or not, because so many different states and towns and counties were closing down any non-essential medical procedure because of COVID-19. But I feel like we haven't really been hearing too much in the news recently. Could you just catch us up on what has been happening in this debate of whether or not abortion should be called essential or non-essential? Sure, sure. And um, like you mentioned, it's been a little bit difficult to track, you know, in part because so many different states are doing slightly different things. Some states immediately declared abortion an essential service. Some states declared it non-essential. Some states weren't really clear one way or the other. And of course, during all of this, lawsuits were flying in both directions. And so a lot of this was really playing out in court and decisions going back and forth and appeals happening. And basically, you know, where things stand right now, we had the 11th and 10th circuit saying that states could not block abortion access and that it was essential. And then in other circuits, like the 8th and the 5th circuit, they said that, yes, states could block those services and that they were within their rights to classify abortion as non-essential. So even in the appeals courts, it's been a mixed bag, really, for these states. And of course, now we're in the reopening phase. And so a lot of um, those arguments going back and forth of whether it's essential versus non-essential are now moot because states are starting to reopen and a lot of these elective procedures are being allowed again, regardless. And so all in all, it was really a a lot of fast back and forth. And now we have mixed signals from the appeals court levels of whether or not states were right to do that in the first place. Hmm, Interesting. So yeah, like you say, gosh, we have seen all these lawsuits kind of flying everywhere. We had eight different states that initially kind of declared, okay, abortion is a non-essential medical procedure during COVID-19. A few of those were Texas, Tennessee, Alabama, Ohio. We saw those lawsuits come from the Centers for Reproductive Rights, Planned Parenthood, the ACLU. So like you say, we're, you know, some of those lawsuits are kind of being deemed moot now as states are reopening. Would you be able to weigh in on on kind of any particular state and what is happening in one of those states regarding the debate being ongoing? Yeah, well, one thing that um, I, I do kind of want to highlight is that, of course, while we're talking about court decisions and this and that going back and forth, there is a human cost on the ground in states where abortion was declared non-essential, you then had abortion clinics in neighboring states encouraging women to, you know, break quarantine rules, cross state lines, go to other clinics to get abortions. Um, But then at the same time, you also had a lot of the pregnancy resource centers and other groups being able to step up and show women that they are there to help and that you don't have to have this abortion, to be able to succeed, to chase your dreams, that 
we're all in this tough time of this pandemic, but we are here to walk alongside you and to help you during this challenging time. And so I, I think that's something that we've seen played out in all of the different states, really. We had the opportunity to have a wonderful webinar panel um, at the Heritage Foundation last week, and we heard from Brian Fisher at Human Coalition. And he said that even during the midst of the pandemic, they have seen a huge increase in the number of women who are reaching out to them, who are being able to do telemedicine appointments um, and talk to someone and get the help they need when they're facing an unplanned or challenging pregnancy. And so even in states where abortions were allowed to continue, it hasn't been all bad news by any means. Wow, that's really encouraging. And I wanted to, yeah, to ask you about that. Have, and maybe it's too soon, maybe we don't really have the numbers yet, but do you know if we have seen a decline in abortions during coronavirus? You know, it'll be hard to say because abortion data is um, often slow to come in of when states actually report it. It's often at least a year after the fact. Um, and in particular with abortion organizations like Planned Parenthood, that's also a year after the fact. The Centers for Disease Control publishes nationwide abortion data, and that information is three years after the fact. And so it, it could be a while before we're really able to um, understand what actually happened on the ground. Uh, we do know that abortion proponents were quick to start pushing telemedicine abortion, um, chemical abortion, which of course doesn't require the same kind of personal protective equipment that a surgical abortion would require. Um, so it, it will take a little bit of time. Hopefully some of that state level data will come out in the next year, at least in some states. And that'll give us kind of a snapshot. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's certainly encouraging that uh, at least some um, pro-life centers are experiencing, you know, just as, as much, if not more, uh, you know, clients coming to them and, and reaching out for those resources and that counseling. That's really, really encouraging to hear. And I do want to ask you, do you think that, you know, this whole debate during COVID-19 about whether or not abortion is essential or, or, or not, do you think we might see a, a long-term a shift in the abortion industry as a result? I mean, could some states having deemed abortion as non-essential get us one step closer to seeing the end of abortion? You know, I, I think it is important that we did get in um, two different circuits um, affirmation that Yes, abortion can be classified as a non-essential service. It is an elective procedure. Of course, the bar is high to be able to, to classify it that way. This pandemic is unprecedented in so many ways. Um, but it's important to, to have that record um, here in our, our legal process. But beyond that, it, it was really disturbing to see how quickly the abortion industry seized on chemical abortion in particular. Um, chemical abortion, it's a two-step process. And the medication that surrounds that regimen is um, very strictly regulated. It, it's not the sort of thing you can get 
over the counter um, that's super easily accessible. It's supposed to require um, the the close attention of your physician. And the abortion industry has for years now been calling on the FDA to loosen those restrictions. And of course, during the pandemic, they can't let a good crisis go to waste. And so they use this pandemic as yet another excuse to try to call on those regulations to be weakened so that they would be able to send, for example, abortion pills via mail um, to, to have things done over telemedicine, which of course is incredibly dangerous because you're only supposed to take these pills in the very, very early stages of pregnancy and without doing any kind of ultrasound or physical examination, how can your doctor rule out an ectopic pregnancy? How can they be sure that you're indeed less than 72 days pregnant if they can't even perform an ultrasound? So it really highlighted the frankly dangerous rhetoric and recommendations that are coming from the abortion industry. And again, all because they wanted to seize on this pandemic and not let a crisis go to waste. Wow. That's, I mean, that's really scary to think that a woman, you know, she can kind of guess how far along she is, but, uh, you know, not fully knowing could just be sent pills in the mail that she would take and um, could obviously easily have complications if she is much further along than she thinks she is. And again, one of the, I, I guess, silver linings of the pandemic is that we heard from the abortion industry, um, you know, there there are companies out there that illegally operate. Um, and the pro-life community has long been calling on the U.S. government to do everything they can to crack down on this. But there are companies who will illegally ship abortion drugs internationally into the United States. And because of the pandemic and other countries kind of shutting off their, their borders or, or trade temporarily, that illegal market of abortion drugs was actually um, bottled up. Wow. Um, which, again, it's one of those kind of silver lining things that you don't necessarily think of. And uh, again, as the world starts opening back up, the, the problem is going to come back and we need the U.S. government to be vigilant in trying to protect women from these dangerous illegal drugs. But um, yeah, there, there's definitely been things like that, that I don't think any of us necessarily anticipated two months ago. Yeah, for sure. Now it's wild to see all the repercussions. Well, Melanie, I want to turn to a little bit of a, or well, a much, much cheerier topic. And that is that you're having a baby this week. Congratulations to you. So exciting. This is your second child. I have to ask, what has it been like being pregnant, being in your final trimester of pregnancy uh, during a global pandemic? <laughs> you know, it, it's been really interesting. My son is two. And so my my pregnancy with him obviously didn't have to worry about a pandemic. Um, this time around, I I am a little bit relieved that it's my second go around. So I know a little bit more um, about what to expect. Yeah. It's been really interesting. And of course, I guess there's the more um, the the frivolous things that are challenging. You know, you can't go get a prenatal massage, can't get one last pedicure, can't have one last date night, yeah. <laughs> anything like that. But, you know, that's that's okay. There's there's much bigger problems in the world. I think that 
the main thing, it's just been so different not having as many face-to-face interactions with your provider and everything at the hospital and doctor's office being on lockdown. I've been having to go to extra monitoring for the last couple months. And my husband hasn't been able to go to any of those ultrasounds. Wow. Um, And, you know, every time I leave the maternal fetal medicine clinic, it's always really sad to see all the dads sitting out in their cars, um, Mm. not able to, to go in um, and have a chance to, to participate as much. And so I'm definitely hoping that we'll, we'll continue turning a corner and, and things will ease up. Um, had to go get COVID swab. This um, that was definitely not fun, pleasant, but <laughs> you know, it'll all be worth it. It will be. Well, certainly uh, hats off to you. My goodness. I mean, being being pregnant anytime is very challenging, but uh, during a pandemic certainly presents unique challenges. <laughs> what What do you think that you're most excited for, for baby number two? Um, I'm excited to see my son get to be a big brother. Um, I'm excited to to just meet baby girl. Really excited to get to see our family turn into a family of four. Um, and really, I think there there's so much crazy things happening in the world right now. But being able to to welcome a little one into the world, it's just a nice reminder that you know what life goes on and there's still um, so much to look forward to and, and so much hope. And while the pregnancy definitely hasn't looked like what I expected it to look like. And I know that postpartum is going to be really different with people still quarantining and social distancing. Um, It'll definitely be a challenge, but life goes on and we just have to be flexible and Hey, that's parenting, right? (laughs) Uh, well, all the best to you, Melanie. So excited for you and uh, your growing family. And we just really appreciate uh, you joining us right before baby number two arrives. And we just say all the best to you. And we uh, will talk to you maybe in a few months. So. <laughs> that sounds good. Now stay tuned for the crowning of our Problematic Woman of the Week, plus our Twitter question. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Virginia Allen, Rachel Del Judas, Kate Shrinko, and Rob Bluey bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. All right, welcome back. It is that time, my favorite time, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And this week, Virginia, I have a, uh, I think it's a really good one. Really? Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, she's been problematic woman of the week before. And I thought about it and we've done like 130 episodes. And this woman is so great that she deserves to be named twice. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm on the edge of my seat, Lauren. Who is this woman? <laughs> it is the one, the only Sue Ellen Browder. Okay. That makes sense why we're making her problematic woman of the week twice. <laughs> <laughs> she is a former Cosmo magazine writer and she, since writing for Cosmo, has now kind of seen 
what she was a part of and, and how Cosmo wrote lies basically to further the sexual revolution and really merge it in with the women's movement. And then that's how it's led to, you know, abortion being mainstream today. And she now fights against that narrative and really talks about how pro-life feminists are the true feminists of the 21st century. So we're so excited. We did a documentary with her last year. We were shot it probably about last August and we've been working really hard on making sure it looks pretty and it sounds good. We're so excited. We're releasing it next week. So we want to make sure that everybody's keeping an eye out on it. And also next week, we are getting Sue herself to talk about the documentary and her life to kind of add a little extra context because we got so much good footage and we just unfortunately could not include it all in a short documentary. Congratulations, Sue. Perfect to make her problematic one of the week. Lauren, I am so excited to see this documentary. I know you and our former co-host, Kelsey Bullar, have been working so hard on this documentary. And uh, I, I feel like there's so much build up to it. I'm just so excited. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, a lot of late nights, but I think it'll be totally worth it. It definitely will be. It totally will be. All right. Well, now it is time for our Twitter question of the week. And this week's question is... Who is one of your greatest role models or someone who inspires you? So this could be someone uh, in your family. This could even be someone uh, from years and years ago, uh, hundreds of years ago, who you have found very inspirational in your life. So we want to know those people uh, and be sure to tweet using the hashtag problematic women. You know who mine are, Virginia? I have to say it's probably the women who we work with at Heritage. And that would include yourself. I think Genevieve Wood, who we've had on the program, Maria Sousa that we've had on the program, our editor, Kate. Uh, You know, they're just all such great women who have a great attitude and really care deeply for what they do. Um, and just are, are great examples in their own way of of being mothers or having careers. And um, yeah, I just, I, I really enjoy getting to interact with these people on a daily basis and learning from them. I agree, Lauren. We work with some awesome women and sometimes they blow my mind of just how do you do all the things you do and you do it with such grace and with such joy. Uh, I, I, yeah, I look at so many people we work with. I'm like, "Mm, yep. I want to be like that when I grow up. (laughs) Very inspiring. And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Okay, everyone have a great week. Stay healthy and we will be back with you next week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.